Good morning, everyone. Pastor's message this morning is taken from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 and 8, a very familiar two verses. And the title of the message is The Willing Captive, Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're humbled before you, our great God. And we come because of Christ, who was given freely by a love, a love gift, Lord, offered up for us, for sinners, for his people. And he gave himself willingly, and yet he was bound, and he was taken and restrained. He was a captive, and so he was cut off from the land of the living, not for his transgression, but for ours. And we remember that. We see that in Scripture. Illumine our hearts to understand it. Give faith to those who don't have it. May salvation come today to sinners. And may we rejoice to partake of this supper that you've spread before us, remembering the body and the blood of the Lord who was shed and who was broken for us. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of us who have been here as we've been going through Isaiah 53, this fourth and final servant psalm of Isaiah, if you've been here with us, then you know already that there are many mysteries in this text. There are many mysteries. Mysteries are those things which, apart from revelation, we don't understand. We we can't put them together in our own understanding. They have to be revealed to us uh, in that sense of mystery is how I'm using that term. And then there's also paradoxes here, seeming contradictions that do resolve and are resolved indeed in the coming of Christ. And yet they're all throughout this text. Remember that this servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh, is exalted to the same degree as God himself in chapter 52, verse 13. And then the very next verse, he's lower than any human being. He's disfigured so that you can't even tell he's a human, is what verse 14 describes in his suffering. The servant is the incarnation, as it were, of the arm arm of the Lord, found there in chapter 52, verse 10. But then here, nobody's believing the arm of the Lord. Nobody can even come to that knowledge who has believed the arm of the Lord begins verse 50 or verse 1 of chapter 53. The servant is the incarnation. He's the suffering servant, but he's the servant of the exalted servant of the Lord. He's a servant that the Lord takes account of. He grows up before him, it says in the text, and yet there's nothing in his nature, there's nothing in his natural generation and his upbringing that anybody finds anything naturally 
inducive to follow this person, conducive to follow him. There's nothing in his lineage. He seems somewhat unremarkable. He's a, he's a sucker branch growing out from a root that was, or a, a stump that was cut off. You don't look at him and there's nothing to be desired of him and yet the Lord takes notice of him. There's something special about him. And he was pierced, we find. He was crushed, we find. He was chastised and he bore wounds and all of this was not for his own wrongdoing. Nothing in the entire text indicates and this entire servant psalm indicates that he had any sin in him, and yet he suffered in this way. I remind you that I, when I asked my children, as I read this to them, I asked them, does this describe an, a wicked person or a righteous person? And right away, this describes someone who's wicked. But the text says this about him, that he bore these things. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that he bore brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And then it says that we were the ones like sheep, gone astray, mindless of what is right, going after our own way. And in that scene is a, a picture of our sinfulness, our ignorant pursuits, our unrighteousness, but the very next verse describes him as the lamb who is slain, who opened not his mouth. There's so much in this text that we come to, and if it were just the mind of men, we would just be baffled, somewhat like the eunuch was in Acts chapter 8. Philip comes to him, and do you understand what you read? And he says, how can I? Unless somebody gives the explanation. And this voiceless lamb we learned in chapter 53, verse 7, was a willing lamb. So what that verse meant when it describes Jesus as one who did not open his mouth, as a lamb to his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He went to the slaughter voiceless, not defending himself. He went willingly. And so we come to verse 8, and we see yet another contrast, though. When we think of somebody who willingly goes into a circumstance or certain uh, uh, place, you don't expect them to also be someone who's restrained, restrained or under constraint, somebody who's in bondage. And that's what verse 8 concerns. It concerns Christ's captive the servant of the Lord taken captive for our transgression. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Thomas Mountain, the Puritan, wrote many centuries ago that there is a scarce verse in all of Scripture, now get this, that has been so variously expounded as this one hath been, not only by others, by various people, but by themselves, by the same men. Scarce a man hath agreed with himself positively to determine the sense of verse 8. The phrase is looking so many several ways. And he's speaking here of the difficulty of translating this verse and the subsequent different interpretations that follow. The text begins with that phrase, by oppression and judgment. 
Now, one modern scholar says one can legitimately attribute to the prepositions, nouns, and verbs several different meanings, meanings in this. Another one, Alec Motyer, a great Old Testament scholar, said every word in this phrase gives rise to a diversity of meaning. Indeed, they can be translated rightly, just like the authorized version says he was taken from prison. There's the preposition from prison and from judgment. That is, from judgment, he having met the just requirements of the law, he was taken from it. And so many interpreters have interpreted this verse 8, the the first portion, to regard Christ's resurrection. He paid the penalty. It's been speaking about his suffering up here. Now the, the previous few verses have been speaking about it. Now they say he's been taken from prison. And now is his release being spoken of here. And I want you to, to know that the words themselves can give that interpretation. Calvin said, The prophet therefore declares that he was taken away, that is, that he was rescued from prison and judgment or condemnation, and afterwards, afterwards was exalted to the highest rank of honor that no one might think that he was overwhelmed or swallowed up by that terrible and shameful kind of death previously described. Now that's true of Christ. That's true. We know after his suffering, he was exonerated and he was raised on the third day to a position of highest honor, seated at the right hand of the Father. But I don't think that's what this prophecy here is concerned with still. The context, I don't believe, allows us at this point in this prophecy to interpret it as describing Christ's resurrection here. I think later we do get that. This phrase is followed within the same verse by a clear allusion to Christ's death. It says, By oppression and judgment he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Now this is immediately preceded in verse 7 with what concerns Christ's willingness to suffer. So suffering precedes verse 8, and it also describes in verse 9 the grave, the ultimate resting point. The not ultimate resting point, the intermediate resting point before his resurrection, which has to do with the evidence that he suffered without sin unto death. He really died. He was buried Verse 9 regards. So having an allusion to his resurrection between clear allusions to his suffering and descriptions of his suffering and his being buried, uh, here, here we have before the grave him being raised in verse 8. And I don't think it fits into the context. Well, in addition to that, when we go to Acts chapter 8 verse 32 and we see that the, the book is open, probably the, the Septuagint is being read, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading this Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and here's what is read, it says there, in his humiliation, justice was denied him, not speaking of resurrection or his freedom from prison, meaning of death there. Therefore, I believe the prophet in this first phrase to be saying that the servant was brought to his death by means of constraint or restraint 
And this is translated oppression because of the nature of it. It's not always oppression when somebody is brought to law. It's justice, isn't it? When somebody is restrained by the virtue of good laws, that's justice. But here the word oppression is translated, is, is the, the word is used oppression because this is unjustly happening to him. He was without sin. We've just seen that. Verses 4 through 9 say it explicitly in many different ways. He had no sin. We know there is no guile in him. There is nothing that his accusers accused him of that was true of him. He had no sin. And so this due process in law or this legal sentencing, it could be translated as, was a perversion of justice. Yes, it was a pronouncement of justice, but it was a perversion of justice. In fact, one possible translation of that first phrase is by a perversion of justice, he was taken away. Yes, he was restrained. Yes, he was constrained. He was put under bondage, but it was a perversion of justice that it happened. And taken away, then we understand, alludes not to his deliverance from death, but his being carried away, his being put under restraints unto death. Ezekiel 33, verse 4, describes, I think, the same way that we should describe that phrase, taken away. When the watchman does his duty by warning the people from the oncoming destruction, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, this is the same Hebrew construction phrase defined here by the context, his blood shall be upon his own head. And there it means the death of that one who did not hear the warning of the watchman. The warning of the watchman that in the New Testament is flee from the wrath that is to come. Today is the day of salvation. Hearken unto his word. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. This is what the watchmen say now. And if you won't heed that word, you will be taken away. Beloved, what we are seeing at the start of verse 8 is not life from the death, but from death, but willingness and restraint. Remember, verse 7 is about his willingness. Now in verse 8, it's about him being constrained, his being in bondage, his being restrained by sinful men. He was at the same time willing and captive, free and prisoner. Indeed, in the record of Christ's suffering, we see in Matthew 27, he was bound and led away, although it was him who went to the garden. My time is at hand. He went willingly, and yet he was bound. This is how the apostles spoke of Jesus after they were told, don't speak any more about him. And they say this prayer in Acts chapter 4, Sovereign Lord, verse 24, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Listen to this. This is the fulfillment. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, 
this suffering servant, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And what he's saying here is here is how he was taken captive. It was humanity, according to your will, sovereign Lord. There is so much going on here, isn't here? Isn't this? We're going to read that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And yet it was the Savior's will that he go, and it was the sinner's will to bind him. (laughs) We are talking about tension in Scripture. This is what you get when the one true and living God reveals himself and his plan to save his people in this world of sinners. You get a God who is great and who is awesome and who is doing all things together for good and after the counsel of his own will. And we marvel at it, don't we? But it's revealed to us. Isaiah is prophesying of the world's rage against God's anointed. They're putting him under bondage. They're putting him to death. And yet Paul said, none of the rulers of this age understood this. That is the wisdom of God in Christ Jesus in his suffering. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, 1 Corinthians 2.8. Now, I want us to consider this. this. This struck me very powerfully this morning as an application. Listen to this. It follows in the text in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 8. And as for his generation, now that can be taken several different ways too. I believe uh, that this speaks to those who were part of his generation. What Paul just spoke of those leaders who did not understand what they were doing. The apostles didn't understand. The angels even didn't understand. The contemporaries of Christ were his generation. You know, John is very interesting. After he writes his letter, or as he writes his letter, he's saying, we understood these things after, <laughs> afterwards, John 12, after his glory, after he was lifted up, then we understood what he meant by what he said. But, but listen to this. This scripture was known by the great minds of the Jewish people. Isaiah chapter 50. It still is to this day. Now it's kind of restricted in Judaism now. It's one of those, well, we don't go there because it's, you know, it rings in the air. The gospel is known now. We know who this suffering servant is, though so they don't want the confusion. But they knew it. They knew this text. They knew it. And they were hardened against it as it was being fulfilled in their hearing. They, they didn't want to hear it. They, they don't want to see it. Their heart was hard. Now, Romans eleven seven 7 through 10 says, What then? Israel failed to attain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, that is the elect of Israel, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they would not, that they would not see and ears that, they, that would not hear down to this very day. And David said, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now here we have this, this entire counsel of God in front of us. Some of you have been raised in the church. Some of you not. Some of you have come to faith later in life. 
but you have it in front of you. And I want to, to bring this to your attention this morning because I don't want you to become like those who were hardened. You know, we have all these blessings to be thankful for. We have the Word of God. We have been taught by our parents. I was taught by my parents growing up, by a, a faithful pastor in, in most part of the Word of God. What do you do with that knowledge? There are temptations and there are contradictions outside of these doors the moment you walk out into this world. Who are you listening to? Who will you be a servant to in your hearing, in your understanding? I want to warn you about a spirit of strong delusion in this day, even now that is in the world, that we're warned about in the New Testament. That many will fall away. Paul wrote in the last letter he wrote, many will grow tired of hearing and fall away. There's a strong delusion now, so strong, that we can come to the point in our culture, in our society, in our young people, are being torn away from the church Because of a doctrine that tells them to seek fulfillment in themselves. Pride. Arrogance is being replaced with Christian humility. And selflessness. Sin is being celebrated and they are taught to ex explore it with reckless abandon. Because that's what's going to fulfill them. And the end thereof is the way of death, the Bible warns, over and over and over. And we are falling off the cliff every day, being enamored with this world and the things of it, and it will not satisfy, and it will not save. Children of this church, we're going to baptize Meadow this morning, and I'm so thankful but do not be taken away by the snares and the temptations of this world. They will lead to death and destruction. It cannot abide. We know that this tension and this chaos and this sin cannot continue forever. And why would we pursue it when the day of salvation is at hand? Today is the day of salvation. This is still the day of grace. This is still the day where God's word is still being revealed and still being preached. And we have this before us, the will of God, the love of God who gave his son and whom gave himself for us. The sinless one for the sinners so that we could be at peace so that we could be saved. This is good news. So be warned and be blessed. Be blessed in Christ. Seek Him first. Seek the Word of the Lord. Be led by it. Your Redeemer, this servant, willingly gave himself into the hands of sinners to be 
constrained by them apart from any sin in himself to this end. He was cut off out of the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Every time this Hebrew word that is rendered cut off is used in the first five books of Moses, it describes human interaction in regards to the death of a wrongdoer. It's a curse. It's a phrase that describes a curse of evildoers. Indeed, according to Alec Motyer, this word has an almost unbroken record of violence in the Old Testament. And that's what our Savior experienced. Twice the phrase, the land of the living, regards something desired to be remain in, and that which the wicked will be removed from in the Psalms. This phrase, the land of the, li- the living, is described in Psalm 52, verses 1 through 5, in regards to the wicked. Notice what it says about them. Why do you boast, O evil, O mighty man? Look at that, O evil, O mighty man. If you see the, the evil thriving today, those who are doing evil thriving, do not seek after what they have. They can be mighty for a moment and be brought to nothing in the next. The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue, here's what the evil do. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you work deceit. You worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Salah. You love all the words. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Listen to this, though. Here's the end of the evil. But God, this is... This is his judicial, his, his judicious response to their evil. His judgment will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you where? From the land of the living. This is cursed language. Selah. And it's God who will bring that upon them. Psalm 142 describes the alternative that which the godly should expect. Verses 5 through 7. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. And, and I'm just going to read verse, through verse 7 because I think it's important for the context here in Isaiah. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison. Here's the, the righteous, the godly, that I may give thanks to your name. But this is not what we read with the servant, is it? It's the opposite. These phrases, he will be cut off, he will be taken away. It doesn't describe the servant. He's not the one sinning. How can he be the one cut off and taken out of the land of the living? It's not his transgressions he did it for. It's yours. God cut him off out of the land of the living. He became a curse for us, Galatians 3 said, for your transgressions. You know what transgression means? Rebellion. Your sin against God. What he has revealed as right and wrong. You see, we are set free the godly in Christ are set free because he was put in chains. 
he was bound. So we can read Psalm 142, 5 through 7, and we can praise God that that's our prayer. You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. That's true because he bore our transgressions. Of course, the question is why? If he wasn't evil, why did he suffer? And it's been answered already. I just said it. Verse 4 said, he has surely borne our griefs. He carried our sorrow. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. Verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8, stricken for the transgression of my people. 1 Peter 3.18 says it like this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, once. That's beautiful. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Come to the table this morning, then knowing that if you are in Christ, your sins are removed. He bore them. You come here forgiven. It took a great Savior. It took an exalted servant, God incarnate, to bring about our salvation through his humility. So come to the table knowing that your sins are forgiven, by faith knowing that it was in his body broken, his blood that was shed, his death that was yours, rightfully speaking. You know, it dawned on me, and this is so funny, all the things you read as a pastor in theology that I love, and God treated him as if he sinned my sins. Think of that. The details of your sin. Like he sinned them himself. Not just the representative sin of Adam, but our very sins he bore. So we don't bear them, but we're forgiven. So we're justified. And so meditate on these things. Christ's atonement for our sin as we come to the table. Meditate on the severity of it. The severity of his sufferings. The severity of his circumstance. He became like a sheep, the exalted one of God. A lamb, willingly, bound because of our transgressions. Meditate on it to keep you from sinning. As you come to the table this morning... Remember that you're forgiven, but may it encourage you to, to be sanctified to holiness. That it might restrain in Christ's body, in his blood, the knowledge he died for us, and partaking of him, that that would constrain our appetite for sin. And so that we would trust him, 
not just as we come to the table, but in every day and every moment that we would see Christ bound for us, oppressed for us, so that Psalm 142 would be true of us. I cry to you, O Lord, I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in this table this morning, humbled, amazed, and in need of your persevering grace. We know that those whom you began a good work, you will complete it. But Father, we pursue it. We pursue not just the beginning of our faith, but the completing of it. We want to be like Christ. And as we see him, we see what he gave for us in order that we would be his disciples, that we would follow him faithfully, and so that we would have eternal life through his name because of his sacrifice for us. We give you thanks for these things. Keep us from sin. Help us to come to this table now with good consciences, knowing that Jesus paid it all. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.